Thank you, Kelly. We're going to be in John chapter 2 today. John chapter 2. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. This is week 5 of our study through the book of John, and we're just now getting to chapter 2. So uh, we got a long ways to go, but it's going to be great. Um, so turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. And if you will, stand with me as we read verses 1 through 12 once you get there, if you can. Beginning in verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up, with, uh, up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw, out, uh, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and the disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come before your word, to come humbled before your word, to come under your word. I pray, Lord, that, there, that if there is something for us to learn today, Lord, that, which there is something for us to learn, that we would learn from it, that we would drink deeply of your well, of your word, and that we would um, submit ourselves to whatever you would have, us, have to teach us. In your name, amen. You guys may be seated. So, uh, if you're going to make an extreme claim, it better have proof, right? If I'm going to tell you that I went fishing and I caught a fish this big, we've all heard these stories, right? If I told you I caught a fish this big, how would I prove it? Maybe I could show you a picture. Maybe there'd be a video. Maybe you could eat from the fish. Maybe I could have the fish stuffed and you'd be able to see it for yourself. There's way, if I'm going to make it, if the extreme claims are going to be made, then there needs to be proof. Back in the day, there used to be uh, no real understanding of why we stay on this earth, why we don't just float away. And a man, uh, a man named Sir Isaac Newton came to call what we know as gravity. He discovered gravity. Now again, when he made the claim that there is this force, this magnetic force, if you will, that keeps us down... He had to prove it, right? And thankfully, he was a master mathematician and philosopher and was able to make that proof. And we now have what we know of as gravity. We know that that exists. Another extreme claim that was made in our history was that the earth was round. Now, today, we kind of take that for granted, don't we? But what had to happen is somebody had to begin to sail around the earth to prove the point that it is round, that you're not going to just fall off the edge of a flat earth. Okay, so uh, the, there was ways to prove these claims. Now, Jesus, as we have seen, is claiming to be the very divine son of God. Now, again, remember Jesus at this point in his life, he's about 30 years old and he is, uh, 
He looks just like us. You would not, there wasn't, and despite what the pictures show, there was not a ring of, of glowing whatever hanging around his head. There wasn't, he didn't have that, right? He just, just like me and you looking at each other. Now, again, if I came before you and I said, I am the son of God, you'd probably be like, um, not so sure. I think we might need to throw you in the loony bin. And you would be right to do so because it would be a lie. It would not be true. But if you're going to make that kind of a claim, there needs to be proof. Now, right here, what we see in the beginning of this chapter of John chapter 2 is the first of seven miracles that the Gospel of John records that gives proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we have uh, Southern Gospel songs. There's one Southern Gospel song that baffles my mind. Um, it, it says, even if he never did a single miracle, Jesus would have still been God. If you ever heard that one, I'm sorry. The, <laughs> I say that because... Jesus did the miracles to prove that he was God. We wouldn't know. Jesus would have still been God, yes, but we would not have known it unless he had performed those miracles. So the miracles were an essential part of Jesus' ministry to point to the fact that he was the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who came to die for our sins. So each one of these miracles has a very important role that it plays in directing us to see Jesus in all of his glory. So moving into our passage, we see, uh, we'll see three main, main themes here. We'll see, first of all, Jesus doesn't perform miracles just because his mother told him to, just because of his mother's request. Second, we'll see that J Jesus doesn't perform miracles just for the sake of, of, of uh, advancing some kind of religious ideology. And third, we'll see that Jesus only does miracles to bring himself glory. Right, so as we look through this passage, these are these three things we're going to see. Uh, first of all, if you look in verse 1, we see that Jesus, we, beginning in verse 1, we see that Jesus does not perform the miracle to satisfy his mother's request. Look back at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now let's stop right there. Why does Mary go to Jesus with this request? And in verse 11, it's clear this is the first of Jesus' miracles, right? So it's not like we have, we have documents that were written several hundred years after Jesus was alive that are totally bogus, that had these really weird stories about Jesus um, performing miracles when he was a child. They're, they're what we would call apocryphal texts. They're fake texts. They're not real Right? Um, one of these particular stories talks about how when Jesus was 10 or 11 years old, he, uh, he got angry at some kid and killed him. And they said, Jesus, now you can't kill people. And so Jesus was like, okay, and then raised the kid from the dead. It didn't happen, right? So according to the Gospel of John, this right here, this miracle that Jesus performs is the first of Jesus' miracles, right? So Mary, what, what, what was she thinking? What was in her mind? Right now, she did know that he is the son of God, right? She was told that from the very beginning. We see in the other gospels. But yet, yeah, what does she expect Jesus to do here? So to kind of get some clarification on this, let's kind of back up a little bit. Let's kind of understand where we are, what's going on here in, the, in, in this passage. Now, they're at a wedding in, 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 the, in this culture, in the first century. Um, weddings were not just like a one-day affair, I know Didi's helping planning a wedding right now. These were seven-day-long events, all right? Now imagine, Didi, if you had to plan a seven-day-long festival and have enough food and enough drink for everybody who shows up 
to eat and drink happily for seven days. We would all want to, yeah, it'd be, it wouldn't be pretty, right? We would not enjoy that process. This is what the culture was. And at this, at this time, it was the groom's responsibility to make sure that all of this was taken care of. If you were to run out of food or run out of drink in the middle of this, in this, in the middle of this ceremony, it would have brought great shame on the groom and great shame on his family. So this is a, a very important thing. So what, what's going on here is Mary probably, as she, Mary was most likely helping with something having to do with the wedding, maybe she was helping serve, maybe she was helping in the kitchen or whatever was going on, she had something to do with where she knew what was going on here. And she said, we're about out of wine, right? And we need to talk to, I need to go and tell my son about this. So um, now why does she decide to go and tell Jesus? Now, Let's back up then and kind of understand what's going on in her mind. Let's try to see this from her perspective. Now, the last we hear of Joseph is in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus is 12 years old. We don't hear about Joseph anymore from here. So very likely, Joseph has died by this time. So at this point, then, Jesus, being the oldest son, he would have been the one that was primarily taking care of the family. Jesus wasn't just a son of a, you know, a, the son of Joseph in that sense, and you know, in the, in the sense of his earthly father, caretaker, was a carpenter, and he may have learned the trade from him. But the Gospels also tell us that he was a carpenter. So Jesus not only was, the, was in a family of carpenters, but he also was a carpenter himself. So very likely, Jesus had been providing for the family all this time, through his carpentry. And so it's very likely that she is, she is trusting on him, leaning hard on him, uh, and, and trust his resourcefulness. So she probably doesn't assume that he's going to have a miracle take place, but she maybe knows him well enough to know that he is resourceful in these kind of things. Uh, according to D.A. Carson... Um, one, one scholar who wrote about this passage, he says, apparently the family fortunes had up to this point depended on Jesus' manual labor. Like any widow, Mary had leaned hard on her firstborn son. Likely then, Mary was trusting in the resourcefulness of her son, not necessarily expecting a miracle. Right? So we could read this and say, ah, Mary's just expecting him to do a miracle. Not necessarily. Right? We need to, the text doesn't say that that's what she's doing. It's not clear. Um, so it's probably not the case that she's expecting a miracle. Now let's see how Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now on first glance, that does seem a bit disrespectful, right? But let's kind of let's pick this phrase apart. Let's kind of pick apart what exactly he's saying, what exactly he is telling her. In fact, Jesus is not being disrespectful. The term woman here is neither endearing. It's not, it's not an endearing term, but neither is it a distant term. Neither is it like a woman. You know, we think of that now. Like if, if I was to tell my wife, woman, go make me a sandwich. That's not going to look good, right? That's going to go over very poorly for me. I would probably be sleeping on the couch that day, right? However, when Jesus says this term here is not, it doesn't have that kind of effect. He's not being mean to her. Secondly, the, the next phrase he says here, when he says, uh, what does this have to do with me? This is a very curious phrase in the original language. Um, this is kind of where we have to understand that, that our translations are trying to interpret sometimes difficult phrases in the original language. And the original language is, what this literally says is, what is this to you and to me? 
what are you talking about, right? And, we, and from our perspective, we'd be like, what, are, what is going on? So in, in, in scholars who've done these translations, they've compared how this phrase is used, and lots of different translations have lots of different ways that they approach how to translate this phrase. And, and, uh, this, and again, as we see in our text, he, he, it's kind of like asking this question, what does this have to do with me? What, what, what is this, what, is this uh, how, what, do, what do you want me to do about it, is essentially what he's kind of getting at here. Now, the, um, uh, now, backing up a little bit, Jesus is respectful toward his mother, yet he still holds her at an arm's length in, the, in this statement that he's making. Um, we should also understand, though, it's not, it, there is a bit of a mild rebuke here, right? And in asking this question, what does this have to do with me? There's a little bit of a rebuke here. It's not a strong rebuke, but it is a mild rebuke. Now, in Jesus' question, we see Jesus declaring that we see Jesus declaring his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. Right? So what Jesus is doing here, he's not being disrespectful. He's saying, Look, you're not in charge of me. You don't you you're not my Lord, right? I'm God, you're not, right? He's kind of separating himself in that sense, saying that he's not, he's not being controlled by someone else's agenda or, or being manipulated. Now that he had entered onto the purpose of his coming, he's entered into his ministry, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to this divine mission. We saw Jesus do the same thing when he was 12 years old. In Luke chapter two, when he told his earthly parents, do you not know that I must be in my father's house? So this isn't the first time Jesus had tried to create this distance between him and his family. And further, we see in another place in the Gospels where, uh, where somebody comes to Jesus and they say, hey, your brothers and your mom want to talk to you. And he says, who are my brothers and my family except for the people who follow me? Right? So Jesus is making this clarified distinction that there's, there's no, you don't get a shortcut by being related to me. Right? You have to come to me the same way that anybody else has to come to me. Mary presumed upon Jesus based on her relationship with him. But Jesus clarified to her that even though she bore him, nursed him, and watched him fall over as he, as he learned to walk, that even she must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Neither she nor anyone else could dare presume to approach him on an inside track. It doesn't happen. So that's what we have going on here in this passage. It's not that he's being disrespectful. It's not that he's doing something mean to his mom. It's that he is, he's clarifying to her, you have to come to me as the Messiah, just like everybody else does, right? I'm the, I'm the God of your universe too, right? Not just these other people. I'm also your God and your Savior. Next, he also tells her the second phrase. He says, my hour has not yet come. Further, Jesus clarifies to her that even though he's already decided to help, right? Jesus is already going to help. He already knows he's going to do that. But he would do so in a manner and at the time of his own choosing rather in a response to her prompting. In addition to rebuking his mother or seeking his own timing, this, in, in the book of John, when it talks about Jesus' hour, it's always a reference to the crucifixion resurrection, that event. It's, it's always looking toward that time period when Jesus would be crucified and raised from the dead. So we have an element of here where Jesus, Jesus, there's something significant about this miracle that has something to do with his crucifixion and resurrection. We're going to get that in the third point. So whet your appetite right now. We're going to get there and show you how this is, how this is all coming together here, what he's got going on. So he tells her, my hour has not yet come. Now, despite the rebuke, he'll come here. He responds. His mother said to the servants, 
do whatever he tells you. Right? Despite the fact that Jesus said, hey, look, I'm, you've got to treat me like the Messiah. You've got to come to me as a Messiah just like everybody else does. She still says, do whatever he tells you. Right? She knows what he's going to do. She's got an idea here, and she, she doesn't know what's going to happen, but she tells the servants. And again, this also shows that she probably was helping out with the, with the feast in some way because she has some sort of authority to be able to tell the servants what to do. Right? And they just do, what this, do whatever he tells you to do. And so, uh, so the, the miracle begins. And before we move on to the next paragraph, we need to think about, let's think for a second on what, what does this mean for us? This idea that Jesus doesn't do this miracle simply because of his mother's request. <clears throat> we learn here, G- Jesus is not a genie. He's not some kind of soda machine from whom we can expect a reward if we put in the appropriate amount of change. No, he's, he's the second person of the Trinity, the co-creator of the universe, the sustainer of all of life. This is the reason that we, or the atheists, or the agnostic, or anybody else, why we're confused about God sometimes. We expect God to act on our own terms. There's a, one, a couple of examples here I want to give there's one uh, atheist scholar named J.L. Schellenberg. Um, we had to read one of his books for a class we did on, on, uh, on, uh, on the problem of evil. And this uh, particular atheist uh, was arguing that God cannot exist because he does not reveal himself, because he has hidden himself from us. Uh, that God remains hidden even when people want to see him and when it would benefit them to see him. And he doesn't do it, so he must not exist. Um, the primary flaw in his argument is that he has determined, Schellenberg has determined, that he is the one who gets to decide how God should act. And that's the flawed thinking of him. That's his flawed thinking. Now, secondly, there's another point that he misses, that Jesus does, or that God does reveal himself. It's called the Word of God. We have 66 books in our Bibles that is God's revelation of himself to us. Right? Now, another atheist, a man by the name of Richard Dawkins, is famous for saying, I will believe in God when he shows up in my office, shakes the books off my shelves, and says, hey, I exist. Right? Now, if he's a little more honest, he might be like some other atheist friends of his who have said that even if God came in my office, shook all the books off my shelf, and told me he exists, I'd point my finger right back at him and say, I hate you. That's the honesty right there. Even if God revealed himself in the way that we expect him to reveal himself or we want him to reveal himself, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter. Now that we've looked at the atheists, let's make this hit home a little bit more. I've heard time and again uh, people who will uh, say that they've rejected the faith because they were praying for something to happen and it never happened. I want grandma to be healed. My dad, why did, why did God take my dad away? He can't have been, he can't be real. I prayed for him to be healed and he was never healed. God didn't do what I wanted him to do, therefore he must not be real. Do you see the same flaw takes place in the atheist's mind as it takes place in our minds? When we put God, when we hold God to the standard of, I want you to do this, and if you don't do it, I won't believe in you anymore. Who are we to tell God how he should act? To us as individuals then, Jesus does not respond to Mary on her terms, but on his terms. 
and for his glory. This is why the scripture teaches us, when Jesus teaches us in, in, the, in, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, when he teaches us to pray, he says, Thy will be done. That's the focus of our prayer. Not my will be done, but his will be done. Jesus doesn't act for us for our benefit either. Well, as we'll see in verse 11, he did this for, at this, at this wedding, he did this miracle for his benefit. He didn't do this for his mom's benefit. He didn't, he doesn't, when, if he, if he ever was, if he heals you from something or heals a loved one, he doesn't do it for their benefit. He doesn't do it for your benefit. All that God does is for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is for his own glory. Amen. And that we might worship him. Because he is the only one who deserves that glory. He is the only one who deserves worship. We are not the center of the story. We're not. Now as a church, to us as a church, the gospel is not about humanitarian aid. Right? We can have all the programs in the world to heal, to, to, to uh, do medical missions, and we can do, uh, we can do feeding, feeding programs, and, and those things are great. And absolutely, those are good things that we as a church should be doing. However, if we ever think that we can reduce the work of the gospel to mere handouts, we have missed the point. Amen. The point is not to hand out something. The point is to glorify the Lord. <laughs> Jesus doesn't provide wine for the feast just for the sake of the groom, just to hand something out to him. He, he give, brings the wine to the feast for his own sake and for his own glory. Secondly, we see that Jesus doesn't perform the miracle just to advance some kind of religious ritual. Look at this. Uh, it says, now there were six stone water jars in verse 6 for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill up the water jars. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out for the master of the feast. Now taking a pause here, the Jewish rites of purification. These uh, practices we see a little clearer in Mark chapter 7. Uh, it says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. None of these practices that are mentioned there in Mark, chap in, in Mark chapter 7 and that are probably, none of the practices that, were, that are probably taking place at this wedding feast, none of those are commanded in Scripture. None of those purification rituals were commanded in Scripture. They were merely religious practices, practices which no doubt perpetuated a snobbery, if you will, among the Jewish people against the Gentiles. We eat clean. We wash our hands seven different times before we even touch food, unlike you crazy weirdos. We wash our plates in seven different jars of, or six different jars of water, whatever it is. We do all these things to make sure everything we do is perfectly healthy, perfectly clean, as God would have us do it, because God loves us and he doesn't love you. <laughs> Can you see kind of where the snobbery kind of comes in here? This, these practices, they're, they're mentioned nowhere in the Old Testament. There is no command. Now wash your hands this many times. Wash your dishes this many times before you ever eat. And then God will love you. Right? Jesus here, one thing, he's, he's hitting right at the center of what's going on here. He's, he, he's uh, by using these water vessels, 
He is actually, uh, when Jesus turns the water into wine, he actually defiles the water that they would have used for purification. In their minds, he's defiled their water. But what he's done instead is done something far more glorious. Now, a couple other things we want to look at first about these water jars. It tells us that, uh, it tells us that they were about 20 or 30 gallons. The, the word here is about two or three measures is what, the, what, it, what it says in, in the original language. And uh, again, it approximates to about 20 or 30 gallons. A measure was about 10 gallons. So if you think you have six jars, right, that all have 20 or 30 gallons in them, we're looking at about between 120 and 180 gallons of water that he turns into wine. That is a lot of beverage. It's a lot of beverage. Imagine I have 180 gallons of milk saying, do you think we'll have enough? <laughs> right? You're probably like, yeah, we, we probably got plenty. Right? Uh, that's a lot of, 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 of beverage. Now, further, we see that these, the jars themselves, they were deficient. Look at this. He tells them, fill the jars with water. The jars weren't even full. Right now, again, within this, uh, John, the, the, the writer, John, is, is, is slowly picking away at these Jew Jewish rites of purification. For one, in the Gospel of John, the number seven usually takes on special significance as a number of completion. Um, this is, uh, throughout John's writing, John does the same thing in Revelation where he, takes, he, he makes a special emphasis of the number seven. We'll see another instance where the number seven is significant in this passage. But throughout the Gospel of John, this number seven takes on this idea of completion. How many water jars are there, though? There's only six. They're not, there's not enough. They're, they're, just, they're not complete. It's an incomplete ritual. And further, the jars aren't even full. So this purification ritual, whatever it is, it's deficient. It can't do what they want it to do. It can't bring any salvation as they want it there to be. The master and the groom, even for, check this out. This is where the, the, this, this passage come, starts, to, starts to be really hitting home here. The, the, the master of the, of the feast and the bridegroom had no idea where the wine came from. Only the servants knew. Only the servants knew. Jesus does this particular miracle in private, right? His, his mother knows what's going on. His disciples know what's going on. These servants know what's going on. But nobody else has any idea. Matter of fact, we'll see just how private it is when we get to verse 11. But let's, let's pause here and, and see how this particular section applies to us. Not only does Jesus' miracle not center around us as if he were some kind of genie, but he does not perform the miracle to advance some kind of religious agenda. The Jewish rites of purification as they were practiced in the first century were extra-biblical. They were outside of scripture. They were extra-biblical religious practices meant to impress God with how pure they kept themselves. Jesus was not impressed, but rather essentially defiles, in, at least in their minds, the purification waters in order to perform the miracle. Um, and again, as he, as he presents this miracle, uh, he hints throughout the that the purification ritual was wholly deficient. Sometimes when we believe God is working in our lives, we somehow think that he's validating our religious practices. Let me give an illustration here. Have you ever heard on, on the news or read in a book somebody who claims that they had died and gone to heaven and were revived back and now they're alive again? 
I, I can remember one specific one. I had a student in, um, when I was in North Carolina come to me and was like, hey, Justin, you got to check this out. And I listened to it, and um, this lady talked about how she had, uh, she was um, whitewater rafting or something, and her kayak got flipped over and she died. And then she came back too, and uh, she died, and she claims to have had this vision of heaven. And she, when she came back to her, the way she describes this, she says, now I know that I have a purpose. I have, uh, I need to spend more time with my family. I need to do this. I need to do that. And I need to do all these things. There are two instances of scripture where people have seen the throne room of God. There's one in Isaiah and one in Ezekiel. No, three then. One in Isaiah, one in Ezekiel, and one in, uh, in Revelation. In all of these instances, let's think, for example, uh, with Isaiah. When Isaiah sees the throne of God, how does he respond? He responds saying, oh, you know what? I, need, I know that I need to spend more time with my family now. I know that I need to do this. How does Isaiah respond? He falls on his knees and worships. Right? He says, behold, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. And after God lifts him up, he says, here am I, send me. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in Christ, if there is anybody who claims to have seen the throne of God and does not talk about the gospel, it's a lie. It has to be a lie. I cannot imagine somebody having stood before the very glory of God and come back only wanting to talk about themselves. What a tragedy. And we... In, in, in our Christian circles, not necessarily you or not necessarily us, but we eat this up because we want to know what it's like. So you read this story and you're like, oh man, look at this guy knows. But what does that person come away with? That person comes away with, I'm good. I'm good. I already know I'm going to heaven. Good. When what they have on their lips is not the gospel, but it's all about themselves. What a great lie to be told. That now that I've seen heaven, now I'm fine. They've, they've then validated their own way of life. Same with any medical miracle, right? If God was to miraculously intervene in a medical situation and bring healing, if anything is on our lips but glorifying the Lord for what he has done, we have messed up big time. Further, some people will take these instances, maybe God healing them or whatever, and, and, and use it as a way to say, you know what, God's fine with me because he did this for me. So as an individual, let's think about this. When God provides for you, if we use it as a way to validate our unbiblical practices, beware. If a thief steals and claims that God provided for them, does that make any sense? God provided for me. I went, I went into this house and I took their TV and I was able to get enough money to serve my kids. Is that God providing? No! We would never say that. If God provides for you or, 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 or something that you interpret to be God providing for you and you're in the middle of an adulterous relationship, does that mean then that God approves of your adultery? No. We must not misinterpret God's provision as validation of our favorite sins. And as a church, 
If we believe God had worked through a particular ministry, does that mean that for the rest of our lives, we need to seek to revive that ministry because God will bless that practice? No. This idea of, well, we used to, is so prevalent in churches. Just because God worked in that way in that time does not mean that that was what God needed to work. God needed to have that thing there, otherwise he's not going to work. That's idolizing that thing over the God who can work through whatever means he he deems necessary. Even as churches, we are so hungry to have ourselves validated that we can misinterpret the work of God as his approval of us. There are plenty of churches with wholly unbiblical practices that claim the work of God. Let's not be one of those churches. Right? A church can say, oh, God's really working here. And if you look at what they're doing, there's nothing in Scripture that validates what they're doing. Instead, they validate some experience. They use some experience to validate what they're doing. <clears throat> Let's not be one of those churches. Rather, we ought to seek to be as thoroughly biblical in everything we do as absolutely possible. That way, whether or not some external factor brings some kind of validation, we will know that we are honoring God in what we do as a church because it's in his word. So why does Jesus perform this miracle? Why does he work in a church? Why does he provide for our needs? Let's look at the next verse. Verse 11 here. It says, This, the first of Jesus' signs, Jesus did in Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Why does Jesus do anything he do? To manifest his glory. If you look back in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And here we have the beginning of Jesus manifesting his glory. Why does Jesus perform the miracle? It is to declare his glory. The miracle was not about obedience to his mother, nor was it validating religious practices. The miracle was about his glory. Neither was this, this, this was not a, a this story here, this, this parable, that, or not parable, sorry. This miracle here did not take place to validate our 21st century ideas about the use of alcohol. It's not here. That's not what this is about. We can't, this point, the point of this text is, well, Jesus drank wine, so it's okay for me, right? That's not the point here. The point here is that Jesus is glorious. Amen. And that is it. <clears throat> First, we're, we're going to see two things here. First, how, how this miracle brings Jesus glory. Then we're going to look at what this glory means. So first of all, how does this miracle bring Jesus glory? As we, uh, there's a, one, other, one passage in the passage we read. There was a, a um, in, in part of the Old Testament, as we remember, we've been seeing how, how John is showing how Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, according to Scripture. Right For him, that's his Old Testament. In the Old Testament, part of the expectation of the Messiah and the time of the Messiah was that there would be a time of much wine. In Genesis chapter 49, it says this, is binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. In other words, right? You wouldn't, if you've ever broken in horses or something like that or know anything about, about uh, young animals, you wouldn't attach them to something that you find very valuable, right? That might be a bad choice. Right? It would be a very bad choice. It would break instantly. This is what this is saying is there's gonna be so much 
There's going to be such an overabundance of wealth, an overabundance of fruit, an overabundance of wine and grapes. You can tie a donkey's colt to a, to a, to a vine. That's fine. It's not going to, it's going to break it, so what? Right? You might use the illustration of lighting a cigar with a $100 bill. Right? That's just a match, right? This $100 bill is just a match now. Right? You wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. But this is how the, the time of the Messiah, the time of this king of Judah um, in, in Genesis 49 is going, it's going to be this, such a time of plenty. And continuing on, even in, in verse 11, it says, He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Think of uh, something very valuable, very expensive. Would you use it as dishwater? No! Right? Dishwasher is going to get dirty. You're not going to do your laundry in a bottle of wine. That would be ridiculous, right? This is saying there's going to be so much wine, you can do your laundry in it, right? That's the, this is expectation of the time of the Messiah. And further in Amos chapter 9, we see this, this phrase is brought out in chapter 13. It says, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it, right? There's going to be such a time of abundance that this that can be described in this way. Remember how many, how many gallons we saw that Jesus turned into wine? Over, uh, uh, at, at the most, about 180 gallons. You think he had an overabundance of wine? Jesus is showing, I am the Messiah. I'm the one who's, when his time comes, when he returns, there's going to be a time of plenty. This is why he says, my hour's not yet come. What are you doing? This, this isn't my time yet. It's not my time for the death and resurrection to bring in the messianic age. We're not there yet. But he says, okay, I'm going to do it anyway. Right? Because he's showing, I am the Messiah. I am the one that's, that's coming. Further, further validation of this whole idea is the idea that it happens on the seventh day. Now look at this. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, on the third day. Now we should understand this to be three days after what happened in the verse before. Now if you count up the days starting in, in 119, this would be day 7. Okay? Now thinking back to creation, what happens on the seventh day? God rests, right? The seventh day, the Sabbath, is, is often used in Scripture as this time of, of, of rest, this time where things are, are settled and done. And this is, so this is a reference to the Messianic age. John is using these kind of, he's kind of uh, inferring and, and, and trying to help draw his, his readers to come to these conclusions, these small little hints um, through the, throughout the text. It's validated by the, by the seventh day. We already talked about how he uses the number seven throughout Throughout, uh, throughout his gospel. This is why Jesus tells Mary it's not his hour. Um, it was not the time for his death and resurrection, which would usher in the messianic last days and the institution of the new covenant. So secondly, why do, what does it mean for Jesus to manifest his glory? What is being manifested? John Piper, as a, a well-known pastor and author, uh, said this. He says, what is it? Talking about, talking about God's glory. He says, I believe the glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. I define the holiness of God as the infinite value of God, the infinite intrinsic worth of God. And when that goes public in creation, the heavens are telling the glory of God. And human beings are manifesting his glory because we're created in his image. And we're trusting his promises so that we uh, make him look gloriously trustworthy. 
The public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God is what I, is what I mean by glory. And I base this partly on Isaiah 6, where the seraphim say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. You'd expect them to say holiness, but they say glory. They're ascribing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. When, the, when that goes public in the earth and fills it, that's glory. So God's glory is the radiance of his holiness, the radiance of his manifold, infinitely worthy, and valuable perfections. So when this verse says that Jesus did this miracle in Cana of Galilee and it manifested his glory, this is what this miracle shows. The infinite worth, the infinite holiness of Almighty God. Also notice this at the end of verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. Remember back to uh, our first sermon through this in, in John chapter 20. It says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And believing you may have life in his name. But who's the only ones who believe in this passage? The disciples. Not even the servants believed in Jesus because of this miracle. Just because, as we, as we talked about earlier, just because God does what we might expect him to do, it has no bearing on whether or not we believe. Right? God could shake the bookshelves off of the office, office walls of the atheist, and he can still point back at God and say, I hate you. It's all about his glory. Every miracle we see or any of the work of the Lord we experience should not cause us to think that God likes us more or that he, or, or, or that he uh, <clears throat> likes us more than he likes another who may, receive this, who may not receive the same blessings. It does not validate our lifestyle and our practices. The only reaction we should have to the work of God is to give him glory and give him the worship that he deserves. So as we started today, talking about proof, of how these miracles are all a proof of God. Here's your proof. Jesus shows himself to be the Messiah in this passage. This is the first of seven miracles which John brings forth to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. We saw that these miracles are not meant to uh, satisfy our wishes. God doesn't work on our timetable. He doesn't work on our command. We also saw that this is not to validate any practice. God doesn't work to validate something about us. He only works to glorify himself because he is the only one who truly deserves any glory. And third, we see that the whole point of all this miracle is just that he would glorify himself, that we would come to savor and desire and seek his glory. As we move to the invitation... I want to ask you a couple of questions. One, if you are here today and you are not a believer, you're one of the people that needs proof, maybe, or one of the people that is uncertain on whether or not this can be real. You've seen it here. You've seen what Jesus does. You've seen what Scripture teaches. Will you respond in worship? Or like the servants, will you just ignore it? <coughs> 
Secondly, if, you are, uh, if you're a believer here today, are there ways in which you've treated God like a genie in a bottle? Like his whole goal is to make sure that all of your requests are met. Or have you sought, thy will be done? Third, again, it's a church. What are we doing to seek God's glory? Are we looking to the past and thinking that God needs to uh, arrange himself around a certain practice that we've done in the past? Or are we seeking to just seek to glorify him in whatever it is that we are doing? And maybe even find new ways to glorify him. Find new ways that, through which he can work. Um, let me pray for us and we'll have our invitation.